This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast may be a little dirty, but forget about that. I'm going to tell you to go to our Twitter feed at slategist.com. It's Monday, August 3rd, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Greenfield Central Junior High School opened. Junior Greenfield Central Junior High School closed. The parents of a student whose test results were pending thought it was a good idea for him to await those results in a classroom. Turns out it wasn't. So the school shut down out of concerns for coronavirus. They're back open now and they're hoping for the best. That student's name, by the way, Yuinis Cespedes. No, no, I'm joking. He was the New York Met who quit without notice. Milwaukee Brewer Lorenzo Cain did the same thing. These professional athletes worth millions have the ability to walk away because they are a little concerned with the official position of their employers. Let's hope for the best. Because hoping for the best is not really working out. Now, I talk about baseball maybe too much on the show, but to me, it's a useful insight as to what the layperson or the not particularly well-informed leader thinks of coronavirus. And the answer is not enough. With pronouncements like, I'm not a quitter, which was said by Major League Baseball's commissioner, Rob Manfred, when you say things like that, you convince me you don't understand the outbreak. You don't understand the pandemic. Now we have two teams with dozens and dozens of players who are infected with coronavirus. And in each case, the teams hoped for the best and maintained that fighting spirit. Motivated thinking plus scientific ignorance leading to bad decisions. These aren't Republican politicians or particularly partisan people who are making these bad decisions. They're just generally not well-informed Americans falling back on what usually works, which is something like the ethic of toughing it out. It's not the wrong ethic for all situations. It is wrong for this situation. Public schools everywhere, cognizant that there is, of course, a great cost to not educating students, are being optimistic, which is to say, in many, many cases, wrong. They're being wrong because they want to open, but they really shouldn't want that. And they really should know that they shouldn't want that. Some schools will be able to open without outbreaks, but it will not be possible in most of the nation's largest cities. Here's how it goes. We can't fully open because we have not done the work. We have not done the work to open, and we need to accept that. There is no point to thinking everything will work out with schools and the virus because everything does not work out with the virus. We have not done what we needed to do. One thing we needed to do was put in a proper contact tracing regime. We failed. We'd utterly failed. And we need to admit it. We failed because, well, a big reason is that there is a huge lag between testing and results. And you can't really contact trace with this huge gap in knowing who might be infected. Why is there this huge gap? Because there's still a massive outbreak. Why is there still a massive outbreak? Well, things like because there were no masks, because there was complacency, because there was poor science from the top, bad luck, and also actually wraps around itself because there was a lack of a good contact tracing regime. 
We still think we can fail and fail and fail and fail on all these vital, important metrics. And then in the end say, don't worry, we'll figure it out. We'll do something to overcome our stream of failures. What we are doing is we are relying on a stupid, unfounded hope. You could call it optimistic, but it's not working. It's floptimistic. Now, if you want to say, okay, but what about the students who don't have devices and don't have internet access, who don't have parental resources, which free them up to learn? Yes, that is horrible. And that is a failure too. We could have addressed at least some of the technological portions of these students, but we have not. And once again, we failed. We do need to admit we failed. It doesn't mean the failure is permanent, but the failure is real and the failure is now. There's no way massive school districts will reopen without causing more spread of the virus. We could have done something, we didn't. Why do we always think that's okay? Why do we think we could be stupidly hopeful that the virus will go away in April and then be stupidly hopeful that it won't spread to hot states and then be stupidly hopeful that this or that drug will work or be stupidly hopeful that we could contact Trace and then be stupidly hopeful that we don't need to do anything real and different by the time schools open and expect that to have no impact. We just do the next stupidly hopeful thing and convince ourselves it'll dig us out of the last stupidly hopeful thing. Yeah, that's just working great so far. Schooling doesn't seem to have worked. I don't mean our plans to open schools this fall aren't working. I mean that our means of acquiring knowledge through experience as a people, as a culture. We are also stupidly hopeful and we continue to be that way unabated. You know, maybe putting the young people in the schools run by the stupidly hopeful adults to inculcate them in the stupidly hopeful ideology isn't the best idea. You may differ. Then again, you may be stupid or hopeful or that horrible combination of the two. I am an optimistic person. I am, you might say, a hopeful person. But before I am optimistic or hopeful, you know what I am? Primarily, fundamentally, a not stupid person. A stupid pessimist, especially in an advanced society, That person can survive. It's not a fun life, but it does tend to avoid calamity. But you can't be both stupid and hopeful and expect to thrive, not just within classrooms, but within cultures. On the show today, I spiel about the case of Pentagon appointee Anthony Tata. I can confirm that he won't be. Confirmed, that is. Trump's end around on accountability, it earns half a star on the Tony Tata player rate. But first... Kurt Anderson is the founder of Spy Magazine, the erstwhile host of Studio 360, the author of many best-selling books, including Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire. His new book is Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America. Put all the works together and you have a thesis. America is a land of great delusions filled with people of great indifference to the actual schemes occurring under their noses because they are overly obsessed with these supposed schemes occurring beyond their sight. It's a pretty compelling point and a fairly disturbing one. Kurt Anderson up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In Kurt Anderson's last book, Fantasyland, he pointed out that America, eh, we're taken in by wackadoo theories. This is a flaw, but a characteristic of America. Now, in his new book, Evil Geniuses, he points out that there's something in the American character that is susceptible to just that. We empower these evil geniuses to essentially run roughshod over the interests of most Americans. I smell trilogy. I don't know what the third book is going to be, but here's what Kurt's doing book by book. He's essentially defining American exceptionalism because when people use the phrase, I think you might think it means, oh, what makes America better? But American exceptionalism is there are these weird things about America, like this high violence rate, unusual in the Western world. And Curtis put his finger on two phenomena that seemingly are applicable to America and also dragging it down. Kurt Anderson joins me once more. Thanks for coming on, Kurt. Uh, always my pleasure to talk to you in any format for any reason, Mike. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. And, you, and it's funny that you say that a trilogy. I, I don't think so. I think this is it. And a friend of mine said, oh, you, you've written, this is a two-volume history, the fucking yeah. of America, um, <laughs> between Fantasyland and Evil Geniuses. So it did come out of thinking about and then talking endlessly to you and others about Fantasyland. I realized that that was kind of half the story. You know, that was the cultural and and crazy thinking, magical thinking, loving, exciting falsehood part of America that has been around for hundreds of years and, and became an acute illness after being a chronic condition in the last few decades. And there was this other part, this very rational, highly rational group of people who did what they wanted to do more or less simultaneously starting 50 years ago to take over the economy and get richer and more powerful and try to keep it that way. So, okay, so it's not the case that the conditions laid out in fantasy land, because it wasn't so much about certain people. It was about the background condition, the culture of America. So it's not necessarily case that fantasy land was the soil and these are the flowers. It was more two concomitant occurrences that you're putting your finger on. Right. One, one, the other one was more or less spontaneous and in the bloodstream from the get-go 500 years ago. This one didn't have to happen this way. You know, we were... In my theory of the case, we were doing better and better and getting more and more fair along with the rest of the developed world for most of the last century until the 1970s uh, and then the 1980s when we went one way because these guys decided they wanted us to and the rest of the rich world went the other way. And so it is another version of American exceptionalism, which is to say, we are exceptionally peculiar and more and more different from the rest of the rich world. This was done to us. We, you know, we hoodwinked ourselves. We were hoodwinked. And the other one just happened, alas. The fantasy land problem was, yes, out of the soil, whereas this was a very deliberate piece of agriculture by the rich and the right and big business. How are the evil geniuses that you're writing about different from just the general notion of plutocrats who want to attract power? What specifically about this specific group makes them, sets them apart? The fact that they did what they did when they did it, that I, being, you know, in my, being a young man in my 20s in 1980, thought, oh, look, Ronald Reagan's been elected. Wow, that's surprising and interesting. I hadn't realized that 10 years before that, they had built this set of institutions 
to do what needed doing, to create this paradigm shift, to convince the American chattering class and Americans in general that greed was good and market values are the only values that matter and all the rest. So they had such a long game. I mean, I, they, they are geniuses. I, 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 they are brilliant. And, and there, I think there's a lot that the left can look at that happened in the last 50 years, as I chronicle it in this book, and say, yeah, wow, they really knew what they wanted, kept their eye on the ball, and played for the long run. So that's how they're evil geniuses. And it wasn't just business guys. It wasn't just University of Chicago intellectuals. It was all of them doing what they did best. It was like different, it was like the Air Force, Army, and Navy in this whole class war that they came together. I'm not suggesting a crude conspiracy that they mm-hmm. sat down in 1970 and said, okay, let's do this. This is what we're doing and then did it. However, during the 70s and into the 80s, it amounted to some more of a conspiracy than I ever imagined was possible. Because as you know, as you know, in fantasy land, I, I spent a lot of time saying, ah, eh, conspiracy theories, they're nuts. That's part of our part of our downfall. Well, they were evil geniuses because they really had a practical vision and stuck to it and stuck to it and stuck to it in a way that, I mean, they didn't even have the crisis that the Great Depression was to say, okay, now we're going to take advantage of this. They had a kind of half-baked, you know, bad times, crazy inflation, oil crisis, all that in the 70s that they used. It wasn't one of those cases where, well, yes, they, they took advantage of this existential national crisis and then took over and hijacked the economy. No, that, that also makes them more genius and more evil. So who are the they? Who is chief among the architects of the economy we live, the society we live in now? Well, Milton Friedman is certainly one of them. He and his libertarian cohort were, were really on the outs until the 1960s and 70s. So he was one of them. The, the, the otherwise unmemorable Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell wrote this extraordinary memo laying out the plan in 1971. He's one of them. Certainly Charles Koch, his brother, his late brother as well, several other of the billionaires are among them. There are lesser known people like the two guys who started the Heritage Foundation. Robert Bork, again, who I only knew as, oh yeah, he was the, he was the guy who got dinged when, when the right put him up to be a Supreme Court justice in 1987. He was far more of one of the evil geniuses and far more influential in all kinds of ways than I knew until I did my research about antitrust, about, as, as we know, about the, the, the reading of the Constitution that gives the right everything they want, called originalism and textualism. He was one. Robert Bartley, who was the editorial page editor of the uh, Wall Street Journal starting in the early 70s, was definitely one of them. Irving Kristol, the former socialist uh, turned right winger. Bill Kristol's father is one of them. The young people who started the Federalist Society, definitely. Alan Greenspan, Mike Milken, Rush Limbaugh, Grover Norquist, Rupert Murdoch. I could go on. Yeah. It's so interesting. I'm fascinated by the Powell Memorandum. The year is 1971, and uh, this guy who's about to join the Supreme Court, but not in a particularly distinguished way, writes this memorandum, and it really does lay out the blueprint for what the economy is to become. And what the memo 
does and lays out, sets the foundation, or at least describes, presciently describes the era we're in now. Some call it late capitalism. Some call it hyper-capitalism. There's usually a lot of pejorative names. But the fascinating thing about it is it was commissioned by the Chamber of Commerce. It was the most mainstream institutions that were articulating what would be this, you know, extreme form of capitalism that we're suffering now. I wonder what that means. You're absolutely right. And of course, it was also the the most mainstream corporate figures, the, the, the CEOs of the very biggest corporations who got together at that same moment and said, ah, the Chamber of Commerce, they're not really doing our, the job. We got to get together and, and have a cabal, just the 200 of us, to get this thing right and be politically militant. So I think in, in a funny way, as I write about in, in Evil Geniuses, one of the things they did was take what had become the spirit of the 60s and early 70s, the militants, the the confrontationalism, all of that, and decided, wait, we don't need to be these boring, quiet CEOs and intellectuals and, and business guys anymore. We can get out there and go wild in the streets. So I think it's hard to overstate how freaked out a lot of them were as the EPA was suddenly created and OSHA was suddenly created and business was bad and gigantic majorities of Americans thought business was bad and unfair. And I didn't think they thought necessarily, you won't believe where we're going to get by 1990. Maybe some of them did. But I, I think they really thought like, oh my God, this is the fight of our lifetime. This is an existential battle. And then it, then they just kept winning and they won beyond their wildest dreams. So I think that's why it was so extreme. And, and it was extreme in a way that they hadn't been. I mean, the, the labor movement back in the 30s and 40s, obviously, had been organized and a class-based organization to get wealth shared more for the workers. And, and so they, they just finally, in so many ways, took up, they looked backward and said, oh, look what the labor movement did. Oh, look what civil libertarians have done. Oh, look at what these left-wing law firms and consumer welfare things. Hmm, let's do that. So they, they, they did it because they're corporate guys and, and organized. They did it really well and really rapidly and kept at it. So how do we go back? How do we, how do people seize the power or how does uh, the culture, you know, you write so much about how the culture is on this one track that both parallels and ignores the rea- economic realities. But what is the prescription, since we still live in a more or less functional democracy, maybe a little less than more, what is the prescription for the people saying, this sucks, uh, we're going we're gonna to go back to what America should be and what it was for decades and decades? Well, one of the th- reasons I wrote Evil Geniuses was to show that um, uh, in living memory, <laughs> as of 1976, let's say, the bicentennial year, things were pretty good. We had an antitrust system that worked pretty well. We had a judiciary that had not been taken over by ideologues. Uh, we had taxes that were reasonable rather than crazily low on rich people and, and business. So in living memory, it was working okay. So it's not like, oh, we have to become Denmark tomorrow. now. We ought to look to become one of the Nordics tomorrow, in my view, but it was working pretty well. So, so how do we do that? I leave that to the, the political ah. geniuses. <laughs> well, I, I, I think that she probably won't be vice president she's, or president, but Elizabeth Warren, whatever her weaknesses or strengths as a candidate were or are, in my view, had it right. And what was wrong? And, and not as though it's always been like this and because we started growing less fast 
came in a ditch. We were steered into a ditch and the drivers hopped out and got in their limo and, and drove off. I'm an elder telling you young people that it wasn't always this way. And what looks radical now was the way, I mean, in terms of tax rates and antitrust aggression and all the rest, was the way it was until 40 years ago. That's one way to get there. And, and, and I think, God knows, you look at the polling numbers on certainly among young people, but even not just young people, when they poll about universal basic income or what the ideal fairness of, of wealth distribution should be, this country on economics is a lot more left than it knows. So many of the evil geniuses you write about had tactics and strategy and they saw themselves as part of a movement and they probably defined themselves not as evil, but as people who are huge cheerleaders for capitalism and certainly conservative and maybe Republican. Now we have the new strain of evil geniuses, the tech geniuses, who there are exceptions, Peter Thiel among them and wherever Elon Musk is on the sanity political spectrum. But now a lot of these tech bros see themselves as like good liberal people. Does that change anything much? If the inheritors right, of the evil genius mantle, want to at least see themselves and literally put in their mission statement, don't be evil, can that have any effect? I'm not hopeful on that front uh, because, <laughs> you know, Facebook and Google are now the largest company, and Apple for that matter, the largest companies that have ever existed in real terms beyond inflation adjusted. So, and they are benefiting as no company has benefited in this country since the 19th century from being monopolies, effectively monopolies. So the don't be evil and yeah, we're, we're nice liberals here in Silicon Valley. No, I, that doesn't give me much hope for changing because this term that started being used in the 70s, I'm, I'm socially liberal, but fiscally conservative, which meant like, keep my taxes super low and let me have as much power in my business as possible. But if you want to be gay, you want to smoke weed, sure. Well, that isn't what we need. And that was part of the buy-off for the last 50 years is, is allowance for personal liberty up the wazoo from guns to weed. But no, I'm not hopeful, really. When people like Mark Zuckerberg, as awful as he is in so many ways, do suggest that, well, we're going to need something like a universal basic income because we're going to eliminate all the jobs that there are. Those aren't his exact words. But I, at least those guys, because they face facts and are engineers and can run the numbers, they see that we are not going to be creating enough jobs that are economically uh, make sense to pay people decent incomes. They understand that, at least. They're happy to go to the next phase of digital feudalism, but they're at least willing to entertain the idea of paying the serfs well, you know? Yeah. Kurt Anderson is the author of the nonfiction works, The Real Thing, Reset, Fantasyland, the purported nonfiction work, You Can't Spell America Without Me, with Alec Baldwin, and now Evil Geniuses. Yeah, he also founded Spy and the Studio 360. Don't, they don't even make it in his bio. Thank you so much, <laughs> Kurt. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Have you heard the case of Anthony Tata? I'll tell you now, there'll be no time later. So Tata was Trump's pick to be the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, the third highest ranking official at the Pentagon, and therefore requiring Senate confirmation. But Tata's name was withdrawn before his hearing for reasons we'll get into. And what's happened to Tata is notable, which we will also get into. But before we go any further with the Tata data, 
I think it's important to announce that his name is Anthony Tata. I looked into it, was kind of hoping it would be Tony Tata, because then we could look at him as a political pinata who the Trump administration tried to give its imprimata to try to elevate him beyond persona non grata. But it's not. It's not Tony Tata. It's Anthony Tata. Anthony Tata, a former brigadier general, mounted a fairly successful career as an author, kind of a cut-rate Tom Clancy, military novels. He also served as the superintendent of a North Carolina school district, somewhat contentiously. But then he became North Carolina's Secretary of Transportation, by most accounts, fairly successfully. It was all a pretty good career for Tata. He showed leadership. He showed the ability to work within bureaucracies. And compared to many, if not most, of the Trump administration's appointees, it indicated at least some qualification for the position that he was up for. However, within the last two years, Tata embarrassed himself by claiming on Twitter that radical Islam was, quote, the most oppressive, violent religion I know of, that Barack Obama was, quote, a terrorist leader who did more to harm the U.S. and help Islamic countries than any president in history. He also said that California Representative Maxine Waters was, quote, a vicious race-baiting racist. And he said that Don Lemon was working on CNN's, quote, liberal plantation. He's also a deep state theorist. Uh, complicated as to how, let me just relay to you CNN's headline, Anthony Tata pushed conspiracy theories that former CIA director tried to overthrow Trump and even have him assassinated. Tata branded himself as a Trump-style populist through Fox appearances, which amplified his forays into ugliness and insensitivity all over social media. Now I say, and you heard me say that he embarrassed himself, but those words, those phrases, that acting out, those were the exact words and sentiments that endeared him to the president. And therefore, it was decided. Tata was such a vital commentator, which Trump gleaned as a Fox spectator, that no one could be greater than this right-wing Islamophobe instigator. Just one problem with the nomination of Tata, getting him past the odd Democratic legislator. And not just Democrats. James Inhofe of Oklahoma, by some accounts the most conservative member of the Senate, delayed Tata's hearing a half hour before it began. Additionally, several generals who endorsed Tata withdrew their endorsements when his comments came to light, and all the Democrats on the military committee were outraged by Tata's nomination, writing, quote, no one with a record of repeated repugnant statements like yours should be nominated to serve in a senior position of public trust at the Pentagon. Your views are wholly incompatible with the U.S. military's values. So the Trump administration, sensing some headwinds, withdrew Tata as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. He instead will be named the official performing the duties of the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Sounds like quite a similar position, does it not? Still defense, still undersecretary, still policies. In both cases, those jobs will be filled by Tata. He's the common denominator. This is a Trump tactic, by the way, such as it is. The president has said he loves temporary appointments because they don't require Senate confirmation. This new made-up job, the guy doing the job that required confirmation, does not need confirmation. Guess what all these positions also don't require? Scrutiny, accountability, or maybe qualifications. We increasingly have an administration staffed by a cadre of cast-offs and replacement players. A year and a half ago, when this phenomenon was already in full flower, or peak putrescence. Trump was asked about making some of his temporary appointees permanent, and he remarked, I'm in no hurry, 
quote, I have acting and my actings are doing really great. He specifically praised acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney saying, quote, I sort of like acting. It gives me more flexibility. Do you understand that? I like acting. Yeah, Mulvaney is now out. And I guess Tata is in. And Trump is delighted that the system allows him to tap in Anthony Tata, another instigator, and for he as president to bypass the checks and balance systems of the Constitution. The fate of Tata will be decided later. His temporary gig will end two days before the election, the results of which Trump could accept or try to become a dictator. And that's it for today's show. The gist is produced by Tata Hayda Daniel Schrader. It's also produced by Margaret Kelly, making her a Schrader collaborator. The acting temporary undersecretary of executive producer of Slate Podcast is Alicia Montgomery. The gist, with this helpful hint to anyone trying to spot an evil genius. Crack a joke, and if they laugh, you got one. Boom pro depro dupro, and thanks for listening. <laughs> I talked fast today, didn't I?